it's you'll see this as you are working on your your lab work and um, I saw this yesterday because I am uh, working through the lab work again I, I've mentioned I've done it several times but I'm also working through it again uh, contemporary somewhat with you guys uh, just to um, you know once again have that information and, and, and kind of stay on track with where everyone is and and you'll see that as you're working on things you can kind of see the work of your fellow students. Now you probably won't necessarily know who they are, but you'll see, oh look, whoever person seven is, they already did this because you can see their information in the system. And so uh, it's really important as you will discover as you are working that you are very diligent about naming your things the way the instructions say to, in particular the, the coding that you do for things because that's how you're going to be able to differentiate your things from your classmates. It happens, fortunately, very, very rarely, but I have had a couple of incidents where students have gone in and I, I'm sure inadvertently messed up the work of a, a classmate. And none of you, I'm sure, want to do that. So please make sure that as you are doing your work that you're working carefully so as to be respectful of the other people that, that you are sharing the system with. That's all I had written down for pre-class kind of things for us to talk about. What I'd, I'd like to do in our time together today is uh, continue in and wrap up this discussion. I, I called course overview and success factors, but at this point, I, I really consider us to have started into some of the, the main points of discussion for this class. And so uh, hopefully we'll be able to wrap this up. Thank you here in just a uh, few minutes and maybe start into the, the next slide deck. You, you should hopefully recall from when we were last together, we, we spent a good bit of time talking about these five different opportunities available to companies that are looking to take an enterprise information system, an ERP system, or perhaps other system that they have purchased and turn it into something that is specifically very useful for their organization. And this is one of those things that in this class we talk about for, I don't know, maybe an hour to be generous, but in a real world on the job situation, this, the things that are talked about on this slide represent in some cases months and, and months and months of work. Uh, there was a student who uh, graduated from our department uh, probably a year or two ago that while he was a student got a job with a company that was looking to purchase and implement an ERP system. And they knew that he had taken some courses along the lines of what we're doing together. And so while he was still a student, which just floored me that they entrusted him with this responsibility, not that he wasn't a great guy, but to give this job to someone at the start of their career, I thought was amazing. They said, we want you to like call meetings and get all the different people in our company together over time, get all the department heads together, it's a good size organization, and talk to them about their needs and their business processes and document the way things work in all the different parts of our organization so that when we bring this system in, um, you can help us get it, get it configured. That's a mammoth task. And he actually worked on that for, for months and really never even 
I feel like I, I think from what he expressed, he had just kind of really gotten started on the process. And then he had an opportunity happen that's like one of those uh, great things, which is another company came along and, and liked what he was doing and offered him three times more money to come work for them. And so he left that project and went to work for this other company. Um, but the time and effort that companies spend trying to figure out, uh, okay, you know, what do we need to do in the domain of configuration? What do we need to do in the area of, of custom development? Those are really, really, really big questions. And a lot of it tends to revolve around this, this issue of configuration versus customization. And, and let's back up for just a second. I should have done that before I move to the new slide here. Configuration is when we take the existing controls that are already in the system and we use those to tell the system to work the way we want it to. And, and really the key there is this idea of the desired behavior is likely to be unique in at least some ways for every individual company out there. They're all going to have their unique takes on things and their way that they want to do certain things. So that's why we have to spend time here to figure out what this means in the context of our organization. Customization or modification, uh, I used the analogy last time of a chainsaw. This is where we're actually going to go into the software and cut into the guts of it and actually change it on a more significant level to try and get it to do something very different than the people who created the software envisioned it, it actually behaving. And so just to, because this is such a, a critical issue, I wanted to add a, a few other points here to it. When we talk about uh, configuration, which is once again what, what this course is focused on, um, you know, this is where we are doing a lot of, if you will, uh, tailoring of things. And I think there's probably a good metaphor in that, in that maybe you uh, buy a suit of clothes or a, a dress for a fancy occasion and, and you like what you've picked out and it mostly fits, but there's still a little bit of hemming here or adjusting there that needs to be done to get it to be ideal for you. Well, that's what we're doing in configuration. We're going in, we're not saying, oh, what a beautiful dress, and then we like, shred it and turn it into a pantsuit. You know, we're not doing that. We're taking what's fundamentally there and, and just making some relatively minor uh, modifications. A key element in configuration is the issue of our enterprise structure. And, and this is what you are going to see a lot of in the lab work that you will be doing where you have to understand in your organization how you want things to be structured. Now, some of it's pretty easy. How many plants do we operate? Well, we have seven plants. Okay, well, if we operate seven different manufacturing facilities, we're going to have seven plants in the system. But other things get into, and I, I don't want to get ahead of myself here, how do we grant credit as an organization? We sell to customers. We sell to customers on credit, meaning they don't have to pay us up front. We'll extend uh, terms of payment to them. Um, how do we make those decisions? Um, is it a very decentralized process? Is it very centralized? Uh, do we do it 
one way all the time or do we do it in different ways? And so how do we want to structure our credit control processes in our organization? There's an enterprise structure element of that. And so what we wind up building, at least in a virtual sense, uh, while we might not create a, an, a formal diagram, is some kind of diagram perhaps that illustrates how all the different parts of our organization fit together and relate. And, and this structure that we are creating is very, very important because it will be key in things like how information moves within our organization. Let me give you an example. Let's assume, for the sake of argument, um, that what I have illustrated here is a structure where everything that's on this row right here is a plant. So we have plant one, and we have plant two, and we have plant three. Well, what this structure would imply without us truly understanding what all the circles represent is there is a relationship here between plant three and, and this circle that's above it. So from an information reporting structure, it, it, it seems logical to me to realize, okay, whatever information is, is manipulated and controlled and maintained in plant three, at least some of that might be passed up the food chain to, to this, whatever this other circle is right here. And ultimately, what's in that circle might be passed up the food chain to this circle, and perhaps it might also be passed along to what we'll just call a sibling, uh, another lateral circle here. But can you also see that kind of what happens in plant P3 might be totally irrelevant from plant P1 over here? because they're, they're kind of in totally different parts of the diagram. There's no inherent connection, if we think of this almost like an org chart where we have a flow of authority, um, there, there's no direct connection between the two of them. Well, this helps us, if we get this structure right, it helps us understand how information will flow in our organization, how authority and authorization will flow in our organization, and overall, how our enterprise information system will consolidate reporting. For example, if we look at this diagram here, which is admittedly crude and not really reflective of a fully elaborated realistic diagram, if we were thinking in terms of putting together a financial accounting statement, well, we might say we want an income statement that reflects what I've already circled here in red and that would represent one branch of our overall organization. And then we might say, well, I also would like to look at a financial statement that would represent what I have circled here in green. And so by putting together these pieces in a logical way that truly represents the way that we want to operate as a company, then what we wind up with is a workable system upon which to do all of our information management. It's kind of like we've got to build the skeleton and hook all the pieces together in the right way. And if we've done that properly, then everything's going to work really well. But it's kind of like, I don't know, if we, if we came in here with like a skeleton from a biology class or something and none of us knew much about anatomy, 
and we just like put sockets together where they would snap in. You know, we might wind up with like a knee where a shoulder should be and a person having one arm and one leg off of their main torso and all the pieces snap together, but what we'd wind up with is not really what we would consider to be an appropriate uh, human representation. We can put these pieces together in any number of different ways. The key is for us to put them together in a way that makes sense for our organization. I often like to think of this almost like, like Legos. And I don't know if you played with Legos much as a, as a child. It's kind of one of those fairly universal toys. I'm guessing that at some point in your life, all of you have at least touched a Lego. Well, I could give all of you a 500-piece Lego set and say, build something. And some of you might build something that would be really, really incredible. And some of you might build something like, like I tended to do as a kid, which was like build the world's biggest like rectangle. I was just all into like geometric shapes. And so I would build like probably a 500-piece giant three-dimensional square. That was the kind of stuff I would do. But the fact is that 500-piece Legos, if I gave it to all of you, your own set, none of you would build the same way. It would all look different, even though you're working with the exact same pieces. That's the key here in an enterprise information system, getting our enterprise structure correct. Yes, sir? I used to, um, my favorite toy as a child, I don't know how old I was, probably 20, 25, I don't know, uh, Lincoln Logs. I loved Lincoln Logs. That was like my, you know, and I always wanted an erector set, but I never got an erector set. I had a friend down the block who had an erector, I didn't even know what an erector set is anymore. Um, I just thought those were the coolest things, but I had Lincoln Logs, and so. Yeah, yeah. Fill in your own toy. Maybe there's a way this could be, I don't know, Malibu Barbies too, but I don't know how to make that work in, in this example here. So we, we've got to We've got to put together our enterprise structure. The other element that, that is driving this configuration process is our business rules. Let me give you an example of this. In my hypothetical organization, um, lots of different entities in my organization can create purchase orders. But when those purchase orders are created, there are certain rules that are related to the size of the purchase order and who has to approve it. So if, if you work in the accounting department and you need a new laptop and you turn in a requisition and it's 1500 bucks, maybe in my organization, you have 1500 bucks, um, you just have to have your supervisor sign it. And if your supervisor signs it, we buy a new laptop. Well, if you say, I don't need a new laptop, I need a new server, and that's $25,000, well now maybe instead of just having your supervisor sign it, now we need a manager to sign it. And maybe if you're saying, well, no, what I want to buy is you know, $100,000, then the authorization chain is a little bit different. That's what I'm talking about when I say business rules. Who can go into a system and create what? And when it is created, who has to actually authorize it? We have things where I buy something from a vendor. And my purchase order says that I am expecting to pay $1,837.42. 
Two weeks later, the bill arrives. If you have ever worked in accounting, I'm going to guess you will have seen this. The bill arrives. The bill is for $1,838.14. What do I do? You say, oh, the amount doesn't match. Legally, they have to abide by our purchase order, which is correct, and they have to honor our price. Okay, so you're going to like what? Pick up the phone and demand that they reprice this and send you a different invoice over what? 70 some odd cents? In the time it took you to rectify the problem, you spent, you know, who knows, $30 or more in manpower. We're just going to pay that. We're going to pay the 1838.14 and, and not worry about it. It's, it's not worth hassling over, but our system has to be set with what are called tolerances. And, you know, it's, it's kind of an interesting thing. In this case right here, that 72 cents doesn't seem like that big a deal. Well, it's all based on context here. If, if we were paying a vendor for a building and we were expecting to pay them $15 million, which first of all is probably not going to show up in just like one single invoice saying pay me $15 million. But if we were expecting a, an invoice for $15 million and it showed up for $15,010,000, we might still pay that because in the grand scheme of the overall $15 million, that $10,000 is, is kind of small beans. Now, if this invoice up here was supposed to be 1837 and it showed up and it was 11837 then we're going to be picking up the phone and we're going to be making calls about that. But all of this relates to this idea of tolerances. You send a customer a bill for $1,472. And the customer sends you a check for 1,400, I don't know why my slide keeps changing here, $1,471. What are you going to do? Now, what you could do is post that payment and leave the fact that they owe you a dollar on their account, which means that at some point in the near future, they're going to get another bill for you from you for a dollar and then if you don't pay that then potentially they're going to get or if they don't pay that they're going to get an ongoing stream of statements from you saying that they they, they owe you a dollar well first of all for you to even send them a bill when we factor in printing costs and the little bit of manpower associated with this and and the mailing cost and then we factor in the fact that if they do send you a check for one dollar somebody's going to have to open the envelope take out the check for a dollar post it to the account it's not worth it they send us a check for 1471 we we post it to their account and we bipe off that odd dollar paid in full you know I'm not suggesting you try this but you know chances are pretty good if you like got a cable bill or something now first of all if it's a company that bills you every month they just tack it on it's there's no incremental cost there but if it's like a one-time transaction and you like underpay by a tiny little bit they're probably just gonna write it off because of the hassle fact those are the kinds of things that fall into the domain of business rules 
Every organization is going to have slightly different rules about how they would like to handle this. And so we have to set those up in the system to behave the way we, we want them to behave. Yes, sir. You hear about that happening a lot with government agencies. There's a local utility company, and I haven't followed this story very closely, that's kind of going through some legal issues now because they had someone very high up in the organization that was doing a lot of things financially that he should not have been doing. And this is why companies want to take time to put into place these business rules, because you want to make sure that you don't have somebody working in the warehouse that's going to create a purchase order for $15 million that obligates your company to buy something. It's like, oh, I could use a new forklift. I'm going to order one and just keys it into the system and gets this bright, shiny new forklift, and your company's on the hook to pay for it because you sent out a purchase order that said that. Business rules help us protect against things like that. The other key part of, of configuration, and you're going to see this in your lab work, is we have to populate the system with with some data for the sake of of testing so we have to populate the system and then we have to test the system which means doing things like creating dummy purchase requisitions and dummy purchase orders and we want to proceed through the whole process just like they were real but of course they're not they're just being created for the sake of testing purposes and we want to make sure in a real world setting that our system can do everything we need it to do before we actually turn it loose live for our real organization and so that's why I say that the lab work that you do for this class is very very relevant in the context of what professionals do in an on-the-job setting because you're going to be going in you're going to be establishing the enterprise structure you're going to be creating the business rules you're going to be populating the system with data and and then you're going to be going to be testing it out so all of that falls into the domain of, of configuration let's talk about um, you know once again how how customization is different than this you know, customization is a much more significant process because what we are doing is we are changing the underlying computer code. And so we are looking at taking a, a much more radical step here. For those of you that are familiar with this, and thinking in particular of the SAP ecosystem, this is where uh, we'll use ABOP for customization. And the very unique thing about SAP, as opposed to products made by other vendors, is SAP is an open source company. Now, it's not an open source freeware 
company, but it is a product that when you purchase the software, you can drill down in and look at the actual source code and, and modify it if you are so inclined. But that now carries with it, as we talked about last time, a, a lot of danger. And so what we are doing here is we are looking at um, extending, I don't want to use the word extending, I, I want to use, we're really, we're changing the system capabilities. So now we have moved beyond just things that we can do by way of flipping a switch. And now we're, we're engaged in, in much more surgery to accomplish what we need. And I, I think we hit this pretty hard last time, but I'll add it to the list um, just for the sake of, of completeness to review this. We really want to avoid this. And, and why do we want to avoid this? Um, it can make maintenance down the road much more challenging because now we're no longer running a standard installation of whatever software it is we're talking about. Now we're doing our own thing, which means that we can't pick up the phone and call technical support because they don't know what we've done. We have to be prepared to support ourselves in, in this situation. It can potentially cut us off from update streams, you know, things that we might want that are new features and new functionality. We can't get those because we've changed our system and these new things would break some of the functionality that, that we have already added. So. Absolutely, same idea. And, and the same thing that happens with, you know, your word processing software or your operating system where the company releases patches, same thing happens with enterprise information systems. They release security patches, they release bug fixes. You know, we want to get all that stuff to make sure that our system is operating at, at peak performance. Now, what I'm about to share with you is a key thought to keep in mind and and I wrestled with whether it's too premature in our overall discussion for us to talk about this and I, I came to the conclusion that that we can put this here because I, I, I think it will I think it will ultimately uh, make sense for us there is a lot of controversy about this issue of do we engage in customization now, realize what I'm saying here. I'm saying that you can go in and with any enterprise information system, you can configure it any number of different ways. But let's face it, that does place a limitation in that there's only so many different scenarios that, that could be supported. Suppose we want to do something that is different than what configuration will allow. Do we want to engage in customization or not? Let's say, for example, that in our organization, we pay bills in a really, really weird way. And in our organization, when it comes time to pay bills, um, we write out a paper check, and then five different people in our organization have to touch the check and yell Yahtzee, and then we can send it to the vendor, okay? Guarantee you that's a unique process to our organization. Okay, I'm not aware of any organization runs their business that way. We look at that and say, oh wow, 
SAP ERP does not support our very important Yahtzee process in buying, um, what are we going to do? We need to customize the software to support Yahtzee. Well, here's the thing about business processes. If we represent, I'm going to draw a very, very simple diagram here. If we represent business processes, where all of the business processes in a given organization are, are somewhere in this box, we can kind of apply, or we can apply the 80-20 rule to this. And we can say that, you know, 80% of what we do as an organization is standard stuff. It's not different than other companies that are out there. There might be a slightly different way that we do things, but fundamentally we do things the same way that every other company out there does. And so what companies tend to do in these areas is they employ something that's called best practices, which means that in our industry, we have figured out the best way to do something. And we do it the same way everyone else does. Now, the thing with these 80% is the reason why these are standard best practices that everybody does the same way is they tend to be non-competitive, which means that they don't really differentiate our company from other companies that are out there in the eyes of our customers. Payroll. Is payroll an important business process? To your employees, it is, okay? People want to be paid. They want to be paid the right amount. They want to be paid on time. Is payroll something that companies need to reinvent for themselves and do it in a totally different way than every other company out there? No. All employees care about is I get my check the first of the month or I get my check every two weeks just like I'm supposed to. I don't care whether Apple does that and Google does that and Microsoft does that. Everybody pretty much does payroll the same way. So if we have a unique payroll process, do we want to take the time to customize our system to our unique way of doing payroll? Or should we just abandon our unique way and do it the same way as everybody else? And if it's truly a non-competitive thing, then what really makes the best sense is for us to say, look, we have been doing it differently, but it's not like we need to be doing it differently. Let's change the way we're doing because it's easier for us to make our software work because with these best practices, these, in a lot of cases, work out of the box. These are the things that are very easy for us to get the system to do. So if there's an easy way for us to get payroll to work, we still can configure it. I'm not saying we're going to totally surrender that, but we'll do our configuration. But if there's something really, really special we've been doing, we need to ask ourselves, do we really need to keep doing this special? If not, let's, let's get rid of that. All right, well then, there's these other 20% of the things that we do, which is represented by this slice over here on the left, that we could also apply the 80-20 rule to that. And so I'll, I'll cut that 80-20. Now, the stuff that's in the top part of this, I'm going to describe as this is stuff we do that's unique, 
but it's not special. Nobody else does this really the way we do, but it's not important. It's just, you know, it's the way we've always done things as a company. Um, we're not, you know, gaining customer advantage. We're, you know, we're, there's no reason for us to hang on to this stuff. We've always done the Yahtzee method of purchasing, but maybe it's time to move on. Maybe nobody likes yelling Yahtzee anymore. It's unique, but it's not special. But where we have to be really, really careful as a company is this stuff that's sitting in this box down here. Because the stuff that's sitting in this box down here, this is unique and it's important. This is the stuff that truly makes us different from other companies that are out there in a way that provides meaningful competitive advantage. Now that's why a very important part of going through the implementation process of an enterprise information system is us sitting down and as an organization truly assessing what falls into what boxes as far as the way we've been doing business. And in a lot of cases for an organization, they should, they should say to themselves, you know, we've been doing this differently, but let's stop doing it differently. Let's start doing it the way everybody else does because it just doesn't matter. And some of the employees might grumble. A lot of the employees just may not care. But we make the adjustment and life moves on. But what we don't ever want to do is we don't ever want to sacrifice what's in this green box right here. We don't ever want to give up our truly unique elements of a company that are important in the context of our competitive relationship in, in terms of our customers. So this green box down here, this is where if we can't get there with configuration, we are going to invest in customization. We're going to invest in customization to keep what's in that green box. But if you're telling me, oh, we need to invest in customization for something that we do that's over here, this little green dot over here, no way. We don't want to spend the money for that. It's not worth it. It doesn't make sense. It's not competitive. It doesn't mean a thing at all in terms of our ability to attract good employees, to put good products out for customers. It's just not worth it. The stuff that's over here that's unique and not special, same thing. We are not going to invest in customizing those things. But we don't want to say we're not going to customize anything because then we risk giving up a, a very critical part of, of ourselves. Let me uh, share with you, whoops, interesting. I changed this slide deck before class and it seems like the slide deck that I have open may not be the latest version of the slide deck. So I had a, a quote I was gonna share with you that I expected to be on the next slide, but uh, maybe it will show up later on or if not, I'll, I'll bring it to class next time that relates to this. So, um, and I don't know what happened to all the inking I did on that slide. It seems to have gone away just now too. So hopefully you took good notes on that. Um, questions you guys have. All right, so 
I have a slide here on on why learn configuration, and I think we I think we we hit this pretty hard last time. But uh, let me just kind of by way of review uh, jot down a couple of things here. You know, it, it's all about understanding the system. Once you have configured the system, you you really understand it like you did not understand it before. And so just the process of going through configuration will, will give you that insight and, and that extra knowledge. I, I think what it does is it, is it demystifies the system. Demystify system. I, I think last time I probably mentioned to you my example of I, I drive my vehicle to and from work every day and I use it a lot but I don't really know how the internal combustion engine works. For all I know, there could be like a team of squirrels under the hood. And as far as I'm concerned, I don't care. The squirrels seem to be doing a good job, so good for them, okay? Um, this, the internal combustion engine is a mystery to me. Um, but there are people that understand how the engine works. And to those people, it's no longer a mystery. It's something that they could actually take apart and put back together or fix things with. I, I can't do that. So configuration helps us to demystify the system. And it also is a tremendous tool in the domain of, of troubleshooting. Because here's the thing. The reason why companies employ lots of people to work with these systems is because, first of all, they've invested a lot of money in these systems. Sometimes the system isn't giving us the results that we want, so we're going to have to go in and do further configuration. And then sometimes things just don't work. They should be working. They're not. This report should be giving us these results, and the results we're getting are different. And so somebody's going to have to crawl in there and figure out why. And so troubleshooting is a significant um, facet of ongoing work that companies have to engage in, configuration will really aid you with that. And that's why I really think that if you make mistakes in doing your lab work, you know, first of all, don't make mistakes on purpose. But if you make mistakes and then have to troubleshoot those and figure out where you went awry and fix it, that's not the end of the world. I mean, that can create a, a really good experience. I don't know how things will play out this semester. It's actually really interesting. I think it was two or three years ago I had a class that for whatever reason they seem to be very, very skilled at creating very, very odd problems. And I don't know if they just didn't work carefully or what. But I, I would get emails from people, you know, I tried to do this and I can't, can you help me troubleshoot it? And they had done some things and I was like, how did you do that? You know, what, what's actually leading us here? And we went through the process and we troubleshooted it or shot it or whatever the past tense of that word is and solved the problem. And then I think it was last year's class where it's like, Everybody did great on their homework. Nobody had any problems, and, and I was kind of disappointed because what I like to do is, as people run into problems, I like to come to class and talk about them, and I don't ever mention who sent me a problem or anything like that, but I say, hey, look, here's the problem somebody in the class ran into. Here's the error message they got. Here, here's what we had to do to fix it. And you can learn from that. You can learn a lot from, from making mistakes, and that will happen to us in our, in our lab work this semester. 
along those lines, let, let me give you some particular advice as you are doing your lab work in the system. And this first thing that I'm going to explain to you, please listen very, very carefully because it will save you a lot of, a lot of angst. I've mentioned before, I, I am happy to help you, and I am sincere in that. And when you send me a request for assistance, I, I try to respond to it very, very quickly. But I can't always respond immediately. You know, especially if you're like doing your work at 1 a.m., there's a really, really good chance I'm asleep then, okay? And so you're working along and you have a problem at 1 a.m., you send me an email, and best case scenario, it's probably going to be 6 or 7 before I reply. So if you can troubleshoot things on your own, that's what you want to do. These three little symbols that I have put at the end of this, at the end of this line are, are very, very important. This guy right here, this little I, that is an information icon. You will see those from time to time when the system just gives you um, messages. Now, there are a couple of different ways that the system can display messages to you. And you could actually configure this in your SAP GUI. By default, when you are working along and the system wants to give you a message that says like, okay, or I did that, or yes, I saved that, the message will show up in the bottom left of your SAP GUI in the little system bar there. You can also go in and through the pull-down menus, um, and I'd have to look and see specifically what the menu is. If any of you want to know this, send me an email and I'll look it up. You can have it where the system, instead of doing that, will, will pop up a dialog box. And so messages that would normally show up here will show up with a dialog box, so they're much more you know, in your face, and then you click on the OK button to tell the dialog box to go away. Okay? Whether it shows up either place, you're going to still see that little shape there. The difference is, though, down here it's going to be really tiny, and, and here it's going to be much larger. When you see the eye, the system is just telling you something. Okay? And realize that doesn't mean you did anything wrong. That doesn't mean anything bad has happened. That pretty much means everything is good and going just the way you expected. So that's the information one. Now, this is the one that tends to freak people out. The yellow one with the exclamation mark. This is a warning. Now, warning messages are to be expected. Sometimes the system's just telling you, you're getting ready to create something. That's a big thing. Are you really sure you want to do that? Yeah, I want to do that. But it's just telling you, okay, are you sure you want to do this? So it's going to ask you that. Warning messages will show up either of the two places that I just mentioned as kind of a way of asking you, are you sure? And what you're expected to do at that point is press enter. And when you press the enter key, it goes away and life continues. So what you'll see in a lot of things is you're going to do step one and then you're going to do step two and then before step three will occur, it's going to display a, a warning message. And when you hit enter and say OK, it's going to take you to step three. 
But what I will frequently have happen to students, they'll, they'll like do step two, and they're like, I got this message, did I do something wrong? And that's why I always ask for screenshots, because I want to see what you're seeing. And they'll send me a screenshot, and it's just a warning message. Now, your lab will tell you, press enter. And, and that's what you should do. That makes the warning message goes away and lets you move on to step three. So don't let warning messages freak you out. Now, the one, though, that is concerned is this guy right here, the red guy in the triangle with the white exclamation mark. That is an error message. That, generally speaking, means something has happened that needs to be fixed. Now, there are some exceptions to what I have just told you. For example, let's say that to test the system out, we are putting in an accounting posting. All of you did that when you played ERP SIM. Um, it's actually, not that I expect you to remember this, transaction code FB50. And if you wanted to invest in uh, capacity improvement or speed up your manufacturing process uh, or reduce setup time, you ran transaction FB50 and you put in an account number and you debited and credited accounts. Okay, we'll do some of that this semester. That's just a straight post to the general ledger. That transaction is assuming that you work in the accounting department and you've got a stack of paperwork in front of you and you're going to do one set of postings and then save it and then do the next set of postings and your job is mainly going to consist of doing a series of postings. So you're going to do your posting, you're going to do your transaction, you're going to hit the save button and it will say posting saved or something like that. And then you'll hit the back button to go back and do something different and it will say um, you are about to lose your work do you want to continue well the thing is it's when it says you're about to lose your work it thinks you were gonna put in another posting the thing that you did you did and you saved it that's done it thinks you want to do another one and you don't so there are sometimes when you have to think about the context and say, okay, it's telling me I'm going to lose my work because I haven't saved, but I just hit the save button and it told me, okay, okay, it assumes that I'm, I'm trying to do this again. So there will be a, a few instances where things like that will happen. But apart from those kinds of cases, this guy is one that, that we, we don't want to see a lot of. Now, what happens when you see them? read what it says. I mean, I, 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 I don't say that to be insulting to you because I do the same thing. But sometimes the error message will say, warning, invalid company code. And you look at the screen and you're like, oh, look at that. In the company code field, I left it blank or I put in the wrong code there. And so you fix it and life goes on. The majority of the time, if you read the error message and you think about what it's saying, you're going to, to be given a really good hint, if not explicit instructions, on, on how to fix it. So don't let those things frighten you, but when you see them, don't just say, oh, I got an error message, what do I do? And, and not take the time to actually read the error message. Do that. Um, Focus on the key element in, in, the, in, in what it's saying and reflect on what you've done so far. 
and you've got an error message that says invalid company code or whatever, think about, okay, well, I was putting this in, and the lab instructions told me to put in a company code, so let me make sure I, I did it right. Let me make sure I did it the way the lab told me to do it. Now, I have worked through your lab exercises to this point twice, and I am in the process of working through it a third time. There are some places, fortunately it's going to be later in the semester, where it is very hard to describe textually what you're to do on the screen. And so there's a point where you might have to read the instructions two or three times and look at the screen and try and figure out what it's saying. But I can promise you that the instructions are accurate. And if you follow the instructions, it, it will lead you to success. So don't immediately jump to the conclusion, well, there's something wrong with the lab document because I'm getting an error message. You know, realize that, you know, maybe, maybe there is. Maybe you found one case where we do have something like that, but more likely you've messed something up. And so you're going to have to go and fix it and, and then life will, life will move on. And, and be intelligent about this. If, if you get an error message that says, blah, 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 posting key GBB. Well, you know, one of my favorite things to do and one of the reasons why I like to work with the lab instructions electronically as opposed to printing them out is I can control F for find GBB and find out where previously in the lab documents it told me to do something with this posting key GBB. And then I can go back to that previous lab exercise and just step through it again and make sure I did it correctly. So, you know, use strategies like that to say, oh, wow, I guess I'm going to have to go back through the last hundred exercises I did and find out where I made the error. Well, no. The error makes reference to something. Look for where you did something with that thing previously and, and you did something wrong. So, so go back and fix it. Okay? One of the reasons why I have you take screenshots as part of your lab submission work, and I don't have you take screenshots of everything, but I have you take screenshots of certain key screens because I can look at that and a lot of times can tell that you did something wrong. And then I'll send you an email and say, hey, this is messed up. You should go and fix it because it's going to bite you down the road. Okay? So you're going to run into things like that. Look at it as an opportunity, not as a, as a um, punch in the face. Google is your friend. Okay? Um, if you've done what I just said and, and you can't figure it out, type the error message with the exact text into Google and, and see what Google has to, has to say about it. 95% of the time, by this point, you, you should have been able to solve the problem. If you cannot, at that point, solve the problem, that's when you consult with a configuration expert. And I will be glad to play that role for you. Now, I, I want to say, I, I'm always happy to help you. And when you send me an email, I, I might ask you, well, did you, you know, check this thing? Did you try this or whatever? The advice I'm offering you here is not because I don't want to help you, but it's because I know how frustrating it can be if you say to yourself, all right, I'm going to work on this tonight from 7 to 8 p.m. And around 7.20, you run into a problem that you can't figure out, and you really want to get this work done now. 
Well, if, if you can solve your own problem, then you can keep moving ahead. And you're not like having to send me an email and, and then waiting for me to get back with you. So I am happy to help you. I enjoy actually looking at error messages and trying to figure out, wonder what they did wrong that caused that to happen and how can we fix it. But from a time perspective on your part, um, it's, it's going to be good if you can figure out how to help yourself. And that's why I say, learn to enjoy problems. This is where you get to play like real world detective. You know, turn it into that. Turn it like the novel of the GBB posting key and why it's not working. And see if you can figure out, okay, what did I do wrong? And what I'm gonna suggest to you is if you've been thinking as you've been working and not just working mechanically and type, 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 type and you have your brain turned off. If you've been thinking as you've been working, first of all, some of the stuff is, especially as we get started here, you might be thinking, what in the world am I doing? Am I like launching a spaceship or I, I don't understand this at all. There will be some things that fall into that domain. But a lot of the stuff, you should understand what you're doing. I'm creating a plant. I'm associating this plant with this part of my company. I'm creating a general ledger. I, I'm associating a chart of accounts with my general ledger. I, I'm doing things like that. If you've really understood the things that you've been doing, I would hope that when you encounter a problem, you, you can at least trace back through and think about the work that you did uh, intelligently. And that's really when you kind of get an opportunity to truly test your, test your understanding about these things. So, you know, play detective. This is where you learn why the system does what it does. If you're going to send me questions, and I, I think I've said repeatedly, I, I am happy to get those, take screenshots. You know, just take a screenshot, attach the screenshot to your email, send it to me. Otherwise, I'm flying in the blind. And, and I, I, you know, I would like, from my perspective, if you send me a question five minutes later, I send you back the answer. That's good. If you send me a question, I have to send you back a question, then you send me back an error, another answer, and I send you back a question, and we have to swap five or ten emails. All that's doing is taking time out of your busy schedule. So screenshots go a long way to help with that. You know, I want you to solve your own problems, but if you've gone through the prior steps and you're stuck, email me, give me screenshots, give me detail, and, and, and I will help you. And as it says here, Sometimes I, I might take some of your screenshots and bring them to class and show them to people. And, and I'm telling you right now, I'm going to do that. And, and I, you know, your name is never going to be on any of those things. And beyond that, it's, it's not, you shouldn't be embarrassed if you made a mistake. And so, you know, if I pop something up and say, you know, here's a problem. And a lot of times I'll batch these up and I'll be like, okay, here are 10 problems that students in the class have had. And unless when I show a problem, one of you stands up and says, Yes, that was me. I made that problem. Okay? None of your classmates are going to know, and you shouldn't be embarrassed about it anyhow. So um, that's, how, that's how things will work. I had one last slide in this section, so I'll go ahead and show it with you. Remember that the slide deck here was on course success factors. I really want to encourage you to not think of this class in terms of, okay, we're going to have our midterm exam on such and such a date, therefore I need to start studying the week before that. The nature of the things that we cover 
as we really start digging into things is something that you want to stay on top of as, as we go. There is a lot of terminology. I have had students before that have done really, really well in this class that have made flashcards and use those. I've had some students that actually made physical flashcards, you know, three by five cards or four by six cards, and they carried around the little deck with them for studying. You will find flashcards out on the internet that students have taken for this class previously, or students have taken this class previously, have created, and they're still out there using various websites and apps and so on. I've seen three or four of them. Some of those are great, some of those are fine. Some of them, the student like made flashcards up until the midterm and then I guess got busy afterwards and the second half of the semester is not there anymore. Or some of them, you can see some of the flashcards but you have to like pay a license, you know, have to buy a subscription to the site to see the rest of them. I, I don't know that I've seen anything out there like that that I would say is worth paying for. But this idea of creating flashcards and using those to help you with terminology in particular, I, I really encourage you to do that. I have had students that get in the habit of coming to class a few minutes early and just kind of quiz their classmates as they're sitting around. Um, that I think works really well. We will have quizzes this semester. And obviously you want to do well on those official quizzes, but I, I'm often amazed that, you know, I've written the quiz, I come to class, students are quizzing each other, and I'm like sitting there thinking, yep, that's one of the quiz questions that she just asked him. And sometimes students will like ask all of the questions on my quiz of each other before I give the quiz. And when you do that, you tend to do pretty well on the quiz. So, you know, maybe some of you might want to plan on coming to class a little bit early and, and quizzing your, your classmates. Use your homework as a, as a tool for studying and for reviewing key points and things of this sort. The grading in this course is you, you're not writing any reports, you're not going to make any speeches. Um, your grade in this course is homework questions, lab work, and tests. Okay. So you got to come up with a good process on your own for how you're going to achieve success with those things. But I think it is very, very doable and something that I would encourage you to put some thought into here as we are early in the semester. Questions? All right, give me a second, and I would like for us to jump into the first major uh, point of discussion for us this semester, which is introduction to business processes. And you should find that at least a portion of the discussion that we will tee up today um, relates to things that are in your textbook. Sometimes we will parallel the book fairly closely. Sometimes we will diverge from it. This one tends to parallel the book pretty, pretty closely. So to get us warmed up here and to get you guys talking, because you haven't really had much opportunity so far today to talk. Um, this was really one of your, your homework questions. What is a, a business process? And, and who, can, who can give us an answer to this? What, what is a business process? Series of activity designed to produce a particular result. Sounds good. I would like the word business to be in there somewhere. 
a series of activities undertaken in a business to produce a desired result, I think would make that perhaps a little bit better answer. There are four key things to think of when thinking about a business process. And this was mentioned in your, your textbook on pages 16 and 17. Um, some of you included in your answer, some of you did not. Uh, it's important, I didn't take off points if this wasn't part of your answer. But when we think of a business process, one thing for us to think about is the, the trigger for the business process. Another thing for us to be thoughtful about and understand are the actual uh, process steps in the business process. First we do A, then we do B, then we do C. So we have the trigger that gets things started. We have the steps themselves. We have the data flow. What information moves from step A to step B? and from step B to step C. And understanding that data flow is going to be key here. And then as was mentioned in the definition that was provided, uh, the, the outcome is a key element of understanding any particular business process. So trigger, steps, data flow, and outcome. Trigger, this idea of this is something that happens that kicks off a business process. In the context of, and this is where you're going to have to put on your thinking caps, um, in the context of most information systems, and you've had this experience whether you've thought about this or not, what, what is it that actually triggers the beginning of all business processes, thinking generically? What happens? The user does something. That's, that's a beginning of a pretty good answer. What does the user actually do in most instances? They need something, okay. And, and how do they memorialize that need? They create a document. The trigger to most business processes is the creation of a document. So we want to trigger the purchasing process, we create a purchase requisition. We want to trigger the manufacturing process, we create a planned order. And we're going to discover as the system, as the semester goes along, that these business processes begin when a document's created. And so really what you have, if you envision this in terms of uh, the internal functioning of the enterprise information system, the purchasing process is sitting there saying, give me a purchase requisition, give me a purchase requisition, give me a purchase requisition. And it's just waiting. And a user goes in and creates a purchase requisition and it's like, I got a purchase requisition. And it takes off and does its thing. And, and then it just comes back and says, give me a purchase requisite, give me a purchase. So the system is looking for these documents to be created. And then when these documents are created, they actually trigger the process to begin. Well, if you really think about that, what I've just described, then you also realize that that also is kind of the way these process steps work. You have a trigger, you have a document that's created that triggers the process to begin. And that step in the process creates another document or updates the document that then the next step in the process sees and it says, oh, okay, now it's time for me to do my thing. 
And so a lot of what is happening in these business processes is the creation and modification of documents. And that is how data flows throughout systems. You know, we tend to, particularly those of you that are, are computing people, tend to think in terms of putting a record into a database. Well, in an enterprise information system, we think of filling out information in a document. Now, that document, in almost every instances in contemporary organizations, is going to be electronic. We could print it out if we wanted to, but most of the time we don't need to. So we have a process that will, over the entire sequence of steps, create and or update 10 different documents. And that's how we keep track of things. And this gives us something critically important from a business perspective. What does having all of our information flow captured in a sequence of documents like this provide for us. Mr. Accountant, what does having a sequence of documents that describe everything we have done provide for us in an accounting context? Right, but thinking more, more generally, no pun intended. What does that enable us to do that is a very important audit? We can go back and audit exactly what's going on and know why, why did we ship that to that customer? Well, let's look at the document. Here's the document right here that says to ship this to this customer. Where did that come from? Well, let's back up. Oh, look, here's this document right here. Oh, look at that. Somebody typed in 10,000 where they were supposed to type in 10 and then the problem just kept propagating down. We could trace it back to the problem. I'll say more about this later this sem in the semester, but SAP is currently releasing to the market their next generation ERP system called S4. Um, it is the, the successor to R3. And I only introduce it to say this. One of the key features that SAP is excited about with S4 is the way it works with documents in a way and i think they just love talking about this because it sounds so cool it enables companies to do effective time travel and what that means is you could say nine o'clock on a tuesday morning show me the state of our enterprise and it will show you like all of your general ledger account balances. It will show you where you were in all of your different processes. And if you could envision, it's not going to be implemented this way. If you could envision like a little slider where you could slide back and forth in time. And as you were at a particular time, it would show you the exact state of your company at that given point in time. Well, if you think about it, if everything we do in our organization is captured in these documents, and all of these documents have dates and times on them, then we can go back and we could kind of replay a sequence of what happened in our organization. And that's what business processes and data flow through documents uh, uh, allow us to do. And so we'll come back to that theme uh, as we continue our discussions. But a business process, trigger, steps, data flow, outcome. There's another important facet to business processes that uh, is, is good for us to acknowledge here. And, and you had homework questions that, that had you talk about this, is the 
cross-functional nature of almost every business process. And we use that word cross-functional, you, you think in terms of functional areas, the marketing department, the warehouse, the purchasing department, payroll, and so on. A business process, step one may be done by this functional area, step two by this other functional area, and so a given process may cross four or five different functional areas. It's a cross-functional business process, and in reality, most business processes are. You weren't really asked this question in this way in your homework, but you were asked about this in terms of a, a manager. How does having a process-oriented view of a business differ from having a functional view of a business? Now, I believe your homework question is kind of phrased as, why is it important for a manager to have a process-oriented view? Okay, same question, different, different wording here. Who can give me a, a good answer to that? I know a lot of you can because you gave me really good homework answers. So why, why, is, why is being able to think in terms of business processes an important thing for us to be able to do? Okay. Okay, so we don't just see our one piece in the puzzle or our one step in the process. We see the big picture. And if there's one thing a manager needs to be able to do, and I would suggest to you if there's one thing anyone in an organization ideally should be able to do, it's, it's to see the big picture and understand how all the different things should work together in concert to accomplish what it is that we're trying to accomplish. That is particularly important if there are problems to be solved or we're, we're having some kind of issue and we're going to have to trace through and figure out why this is occurring. But having that process-oriented view breaks us out of uh, another thing that you ran into in your homework questions, which, which is the silo effect. What is the silo effect? Don't see the forest for the trees. All I know is that my job is to, uh, they put a widget in front of me, I take this sledgehammer, I bust the widget, and then I push the button and get the next widget. Okay? And that's an obvious extreme example, but a lot of people, they, they just know their little niche thing. And that's not a good situation because just like we were just discussing, when, when problems occur, are, are you going to be able to solve them? Um, do you want to advance in your organization? If all you understand is this one little thing that you do, you, you're not really setting yourself up in a position to be able to advance effectively. And so silo effect is not a good thing. Now, by the way, the genesis of this term, we, some, we kind of have lost the, the metaphor here in, in the way, people, way some people understand this. Silo effect comes from, um, in farming we have silos. We have a lot of those here in the East Tennessee region where a farmer builds a silo to put stuff in. Well, historically, in 
in business computing. What happened in organizations was, you know, the marketing department bought a computer, and I, I can't draw a silo, but this is the silo. They created their little marketing silo and put their information in it. And then the accounting department, they went and bought a computer, and they created their little silo. And all around our organization, everybody had their little silo that stored their information in it. And all the accounting people knew was this. And they only had that set of information, and they had their one piece of the puzzle, but all this other information that's out there and all the things going on in the other parts of the organization were, were not visible to them. That's the silo effect, and that's, that's kind of the genesis here. It actually grows out of the idea of the way data used to be stored in, in organizations. Okay, changing gears, and this is a question that um, might require a little bit more thinking because it was not one that you were explicitly asked in the homework. What is meant by the term enterprise system? Okay, you, you, you gave me 95% of a perfect definition, but there was one word I were hoping you was going, or a, a set of words that I was hoping you were going to say that you did not say. No, no. Um, here, let me give you a hint. Okay, look at what's on this slide. Okay, and now let me go here and give me your definition of enterprise system again. You gave me a real, who, who can help him out? What, what do you, what's that? Okay, that's a good word, but what's, what's the other word? What's the word I'm really looking for here? No? Okay, a system that enables a company to execute its business processes is an enterprise system. All right, so the key is here, if I use a computer program to help me do one thing, like make the budget in Excel. That's not an enterprise system. An enterprise system is a system that is oriented towards the execution of business processes. And in particular, the entire set of steps in a business process. So if the business process has seven steps, the system will let me do all seven of those steps. And in reality, most contemporary enterprise systems will let you execute dozens if not hundreds of business processes. So when we talk about an enterprise system, we're talking about a computer system that a company would buy that would enable it to effectively execute their desired business processes. That is one viable definition of an enterprise system. Now, I had one more question that I hope made it on here because, I, like I said, I updated my slides. Oh, good. Looks like we can get it. All right. I saw something in your homework questions that caused me to think and reflect and prompted me to add this slide to our discussion today. There were many of you that said that a way a company could resolve the silo effect was to buy an enterprise information system. And so I was reflecting on that. and the statement that I would make to you is that buying an enterprise information system will not in and of itself resolve the silo effect. 
And in fact, it might make it worse. Who can explain what I'm talking about here? If people are already focused on their own little functions, and then you get an EIS where accounts payable is only working with accounts payable, and then they still only see accounts payable, they're not going to ever need to venture out because they are already getting all the information they need from other, other parts of their business. If I'm already in the silo, buying an enterprise information system isn't going to do anything to change that. All I'm doing is still working in my silo just in the context of a different system. Just because the enterprise information system enables the entire spectrum of the business process doesn't mean that I as a worker understand the whole business process. I may still only understand my one little slice. So the reason why I wanted to add this to our discussion, and this is a good point for us to end on today, is realize that a company that says we want to solve the silo effect, let's go buy some software, that's not going to solve the problem. As many of you observed, it's about you know, encouraging your people to think differently and pushing people outside of their comfort zone and doing things like putting cross-functional teams together and encouraging employees maybe to on occasion work in another area to see how different parts of the organization behave. All of those things could be good techniques, but I don't think we can buy our way out of the silo effect just by purchasing a new piece of software. I think that in fact many organizations would see that that would exacerbate the problem. Questions about anything before we call our time together today to a close?